Well, uh, today uh, I do plan on covering the rest of chapter 22 of the book of Matthew. And so uh, if you guys want to open up your book, uh, your Bibles, uh, to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 22, start making your way there. We're going to need to get going just to ensure we're able to finish prior uh, to the close of our service. Normally I don't take off this big of a chunk, but... um, just was praying and felt like, okay, Lord, this is what you have for us. We're going to do this chunk. And so uh, it'll be more of a running, uh, just making some simple points as we go through and highlight. Um, remember, the last few weeks we've been looking at how Jesus, he spoke uh, three parables in response uh, to the, the chief priests, the elders who had came and, and questioned him. And he spoke these three parables. And now we're going to see three questions that are posed to Jesus Christ. Uh, three different times Jesus was approached with attempts really to trap him in his own words, to get him to say something that would cause the people to separate from him. Okay? The people we are going to read about felt that they had the perfect questions to corner Jesus with. They thought that they would be able to outwit our Savior with their own scheming and cunning ways. What the people were doing that they didn't even realize was actually fulfilling a prophetic type, okay, fulfilled by Jesus Christ, okay? In just a few days from this time here, remember this is still Tuesday of the Passion Week, it's, there's a lot going on on this Tuesday of the Passion Week, okay? Just a few days from now, Jesus would be crucified as the Passover Lamb, okay? Now, it's interesting because in those days, the Passover lamb was to first be selected on the 10th of the month and then to be sacrificed on the 14th. There was a four-day window that the lamb was to be inspected, to be examined, to make sure that it was without spot or blemish. And so here we see uh, that these Jewish leaders, they are unknowingly fulfilling the type of Jesus as the Passover lamb as they examine him and they test him to see if he has any spot or blemish that they could highlight, that they could use to discredit him or to take away from his influence over the people. Some of the questions were questions that seemed to have no favorable response As they figured either way, Jesus answered, they'd be able to bring accusation against him or discredit him to to find spot or to find blemish in this Passover lamb. They thought they had it all figured out, but let's just see what Jesus does with their tricky tactics. We'll read this, the first line of questioning, just to get going, verses 15 through 22 of Matthew chapter 22. And so as we read, I ask and invite you to stand as we read God's Word, just to honor, in honor of God's Word. It was uh, back when Ezra and Nehemiah were coming back from uh, 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 their time in uh, captivity from Babylon that they came across the scrolls, they, they rebuilt the walls, and as they read the Word, they invited everyone just to stand in honor of God's Word. So that's what we do here. This is morning as well, just to stand in honor of his word. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 15, it reads this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, 
Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to gather together as a body uh, of believers to sing your praises, to be encouraged and edified and, and hopefully even challenged as we study your word. Father, we do pray for your Spirit's leading and guiding. Would you uh, just allow us to uh, understand what your Spirit is saying through your Word? Father, uh, Lord, we just don't want to make this a head study where we learn about some things that happened some 2,000 years ago, but we want to be able to make application to our own lives today. And so, Father, we pray that we would be able to come just with open hearts and open minds, open ears to hear and receive all that you have for us this morning. Lord, we do pray for just a great work amongst our midst. We pray you be with our children's uh, ministry and our nursery and uh, just the things that are going on behind the scenes. Lord, we even pray for all the other churches and chapels here in Iwakuni that are teaching your word and proclaiming the love of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do a wonderful work within them as well. Lord, we just look forward to uh, hearing from you and uh, studying and, and growing in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. In verse, verse 15 and, and 16, we have here an, an unlikely pairing of two groups that come to Jesus trying to, as verse 15 says, entangle Him in His talk. The Pharisees, well, they're a, a group that we're very familiar with, okay? They have been coming against Jesus and His ministry ever since the beginning uh, of Jesus' ministry, even before Jesus' ministry. Uh, in John the Baptist, they came out against John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, okay? The Pharisees, they represented a, a Jewish religious party whose members followed a very strict adherence to the oral law and to the traditions of men that were established by past rabbis and religious leaders. The Herodians, however, they were more of a political party, okay? uh, made up of Jews of influence who were favorable toward Greek customs and Roman law. Okay? They sympathized with the Herodian rulers in their form of government and supported the Herods who sat upon the throne. Thus, they're named the Herodians. Okay? Recall that it was Herod the Tetrarch who ruled in the region of Galilee and Perea during the days of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was born, Herod the Great. Uh, and so there's this line of Herods. These people are favorable towards uh, this uh, political setup of Rome being there, occupying and, and uh, ruling over Israel and, and the Jews. 
Okay? And, and so the reason that these two are an unlikely pairing is because they held very different perspectives regarding the occupation of Israel by the Romans. Okay? The Pharisees despised Roman control over them. They, along with most of the Jews, wanted to be free, to be a people to do as they pleased, to, as they would say, to worship the Lord as they were felt led to, to be able to do the things they want to do, but yet they were held back by uh, this Roman rule over them. They despised it. And here we have the Herodians that greatly favored the Roman control of Israel. They were very supportive and compliant with the form of government and rule that they were under. And so we have two groups with two very different opinions that were at odds with each other, but yet they united to come against Jesus. Evidently, they believed in the old adage, the enemy of mine enemy is my friend. And so we see here that they gathered together, they grouped together. And in fact, this is the second time recorded in Scripture that these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, united together against Jesus. During His ministry in Galilee, Jesus, He healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Hey, there was a man, some people even suggest that perhaps the Pharisees staged this man within the synagogue, the local synagogue there, with a withered hand. And Jesus was there. And it was the Sabbath. They wanted to see if He would heal him on the Sabbath. And indeed, Jesus did. He said, let me me ask you a question, basically my paraphrase. Is it lawful for me to heal someone to do good on the Sabbath? And He says, well, of course it is. And so he, He heals the guy. And it was at that time, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that we read of how the Pharisees reacted to Jesus and the healing of this man. It says that they went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So even though they didn't like each other, and even though they didn't like what each other stood for, they were able to look beyond that in an effort to attack and to take out Jesus. This group approaches Jesus with what some may consider kind words, but we do know that it was empty flattery and only meant to set the scene for their questioning. They claim to know that Jesus was true, that He taught the way of God, that He didn't care about anyone, not that He didn't love anyone or care about it, but the idea that He didn't care about other people's opinions. He wasn't swayed by that influence. He didn't show respect or regard to man and that he would change the way he was going to do things or change what he would say just because he was talking to certain individuals. They said that they believed... uh, Excuse me. These words, they they seem very nice. And and in fact, Jesus, he was true. Okay? I like how the NIV actually reads, it says that they said he was a man of integrity. Okay? He was a man of integrity. He was a man who spoke the truth. He didn't lie. Okay? He is truth. Okay? They said that they believed he taught the way of God. This, of course, was true as well. That he did teach the way of God. They painted a picture that showed Jesus as no respecter of man. Now this could, you know, some could debate this, for the Lord certainly cared about people, but the idea here is that He didn't show favoritism to anybody. Now the question is, did they really mean the things that they said? Of course not. Of course not. They didn't, if they really believed He was true, 
If they really believed that he taught the ways of God, they wouldn't be plotting against him to kill him. Okay? And so obviously, these are, are, are the reason that they came with this empty flattery was just to try and set him up for this, what they feel like is a loaded question, a, a catch-22. It doesn't matter which way you go, you're going to be in trouble. Okay? They had schemed up this, this perfect question. Maybe it's been all the way since then that they've been plotting to try and figure out the best way. And here they finally approach with this question, and they asked a very simple question. They asked... Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The tax in question was most likely the poll tax that was assessed against everyone that was counted in the census. Uh, Jews hated having to pay this tax. Not only was it a constant reminder of their bondage to Rome, but it also made it appear that they had an allegiance to Caesar who claimed to be God. And so the idea of it being lawful was not meant to be tied to Roman law. They weren't asking, is it legal for the Romans to have tax against us? It was, it was in connection to their law, okay, the Jewish law. Okay? Was it lawful to pay tribute to a king that thought himself to be a God? That is the heart of the question. The Pharisees and Herodians in their limited mind felt they had trapped Jesus with this question. Okay? They, they just spoke of how He's true and He's honest and that He teaches the way of God and, and most importantly, He's not a respecter of men so He's going he's gonna to say whatever He wants doesn't matter who He's talking about even if it's Caesar. If Jesus were to answer that it was lawful To pay taxes to Caesar, he would be seen as a traitor to the Lord and to his people who hated having to pay this poll tax. The Pharisees would then seize upon his words and spread them like wildfire with hopes of churning the people against him. If he answered no, then the Herodians were there to seize him and bring him before the authorities with accusations of Jesus trying to start a tax revolt denying to pay taxes to Caesar. There seemed to be no way to answer this question without being seen as a traitor to the people or to the authorities that be. A difficult situation. Let's read how Jesus responded. Verse 18 through 22. Again, it says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Jesus perceived their wickedness. He saw right through their empty flattery. Their hollow words about him being true and a, a teacher of the ways of God. He saw right through it. He knew that they were testing him, and he called them out for their hypocrisy. Okay? Hypocrisy today is known as pretending to be or speaking one thing but doing another. Okay? That's often a, a, an accusation that gets flung at the church, unfortunately, that the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites because we, we say one thing uh, or pretend to be one thing, but in real reality we are something else. We do something else. Okay? But however, in Jesus' day, the word spoke of actors playing a part. Okay? 
and here the Pharisees and Herodians, they are acting a part. Okay? They are acting as if they believe and support Jesus and look highly upon Him. Oh, you speak the truth and, and you teach the ways of God. But in reality, he knows that they've already previously plotted on how to kill him and are now trying to entangle him in his words. And so he calls them out. You're hypocrites. Because you're saying one thing, you're saying, no, you teach the truth and, and you teach the ways of God, but in reality, they, they don't believe that at all. And so he calls them out as hypocrites. Jesus demanded to see the tax money. Okay, the tax money at the time was one denarius. Okay, a denarius was a Roman penny. Okay, it was a silver coin equivalent in value to the Greek drachma. Okay, and most Bible scholars agree that a denarius represented a fair uh, wage for a full day's wage. Okay, if you're a worker out in the fields, as we saw even in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, they were offered a denarius uh, to work in the field okay, for a day. And so it's a day's wage. Jesus asked about whose image and inscription were upon the coin. Now, upon the denarius coin was an image of Caesar. Okay? And it was either Caesar Augustus or Caesar Augustus Tiberius. Okay. Tiberius actually ruled at this time, but it's very likely that many coins that bared his father's image were still in circulation at this time. And so it could have been either Caesar Augustus or Caesar Augustus Tiberius, his son. Okay. According to those that study ancient coins, okay, the inscription upon Augustus's coin is translated as this, Caesar Augustus, son of God, father of his country. While the inscription on, upon, uh, excuse me, upon Tiberius' coin was Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And so the men, they, uh, these coins, they had an image of Caesar and they had an inscription. And the inscription was claiming that Caesar was divine. And the men answered Jesus by properly identifying the image and inscription as being Caesar's. And then Jesus had an incredible response. Jesus' response was, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In, in his response, Jesus completely avoided the traps that were intended for him by the Herodians and the Pharisees. Okay? Not only did he avoid the pitfalls set before him, but he also was able to share some very important truths. Okay? One, I, I think as we look at this, we see that that government and taxation, they have their place. Okay? And I know people don't like to pay taxes, and that's a, uh, you know, a, well, it's not enjoyable. Okay? Uh, but Jesus could have said, don't pay the tax. Okay? He could have said that, but he didn't. Okay? And we even see here earlier in our time in Matthew that he was asked, do you pay the temple tax? And, and he paid the temple tax there as well. And so Jesus is not against or opposed paying taxes. Okay, um, and so the the word render that Jesus used it means to repay or to restore or to return. Okay, to render. If Caesar gives you things and he asks for a payment, that you should be willing to pay it. Okay, uh, like paying back that which was given. Good governments 
I'll qualify it, I guess. Good governments provide basic protections and safeties for all of their people, and taxes help funding for those provisions, okay? To have a, a, a fire department and to have a police department and to have ambulances and, and those types of things. Those are things that are helped uh, funded, okay, by our, our taxes. Those are safeties and protections that are provided to a people. And, and so we can say, okay, the, those uh, provisions that are offered, we need to be willing to, you know, help support those by paying our taxes, okay? I think make a just a, a quick side note here i think there's been some christians uh, you know who have gotten in trouble for for tax evasion and things like that trying to claim well i'm only going to you know give to god he, jesus very clearly here he could have said yeah don't pay your taxes but he doesn't okay he very much says render to caesar what is caesar's and so um if anyone's here thinking that that's okay that's not okay all right you need to pay your taxes okay all right more importantly Okay, more importantly, Jesus showed that our first priority is to God. Okay? When Jesus said, render to God the things that are God's, okay, he was challenging people to live their life for God first. Okay? The image on the denarius was that of Caesar. Okay? And so, render it to Caesar. But the image on you and me is that of God. Genesis describes us as being created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. And since God's image is upon us, we must render to God that which is His, our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 and 20, it states, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are the Lord's. And so we must render to Him We must give back to Him that which He has given to us. He gave to us new life. And with that new life, He asks us to give it back to Him, to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. And so we see here, to render to God that which is God's was a challenge. Because you and I have been made in the image of God, and we have been purchased by God. We belong to Him. And so we need to render to Him that which is His, and that is our lives. You know, when it comes to matters of, of kings and governments, we must follow and obey the rules of the land. However, if the rules of the land are contrary to the Lord, we must follow the Lord. The Lord is first in our priorities. Okay? Daniel, if you guys are familiar with the account, Daniel, he prayed even though it was against the law. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down to worship the statue that was proclaimed as law. Peter and John didn't stop preaching and teaching in Jesus' name, even though the authorities above him them told them to do so. In each of these examples, people did not follow the law of the land or the ruling of their authorities, but they followed God instead. However, I do want to put this disclaimer out there. Each of them submitted to the discipline of those authorities as well. 
for not following the law. You see, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. And Peter and John, they were thrown into prison for disobeying the law and for not following it. And so when we make a stand for the Lord against the authorities over us, we should anticipate there will be discipline. But we need to trust that the Lord will see us through it as we honor Him and make Him a priority within our lives and say, God, You come first. Okay? I'm going to submit myself to this government and this authority that's over me, but as soon as it starts to tell me to do things that are against what You clearly tell me to do, I'm going to make a stand. And I realize that when I make that stand, there's going to probably going to be some repercussion, and I'm going to be willing to go through that. That's what we see the example within the, uh, the Bible of these men that honored the Lord in spite of what the law said. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they marveled at Jesus' answer and then left Him and went their way. You know, we would hope, at least I would hope, that they would marvel at Him and then follow Him. That would be good, right? If you were just marvel in awe, like, wow, He just totally blew that out of the water, right? Our trap was not even close. Or, or perhaps they'd marvel at him and then and submit to him. But no, they marveled at him and then they left him. Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary, There are many in whose eyes Christ is marvelous and yet not precious. They admire his wisdom, but will not be guided by it. His power, but will not submit to it. May that not be a description of us. That we would marvel at the Lord, marvel at His power, marvel at His wisdom, but yet not have it impact our lives. That we would surrender to Him and submit to Him. We need not to just have head knowledge and realize, oh yeah, that's, that's awesome. But have that affect our life. And how we live how we uh, do, what we say, what we do, that they would have an impact upon us as we marvel at God. Let's continue. We're going to look at this next line of questioning from verses 23 through 33. We'll start off verse 23. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, excuse me, resurrection, came to Him and asked Him. We'll pause there just for a second. Here another group comes to try and pull one over on Jesus. This time it's the Sadducees. Okay? The Sadducees, they are not new to the book of Matthew either. We've covered them before. The Sadducees, they came from the leading families of the nation. The priests, the merchants, and aristocrats, they were the, considered kind of the upper echelon, the elite, the minority, but the very powerful minority. The high priest and the most powerful members of the priesthood were mainly from uh, the sect of the Sadducees. Okay? The Sadducees, they were known for a few different things. Okay? They were known to oppose the oral tradition that was passed down through the generations. And so that's oftentimes you'll see them in, uh, in um, 
fighting, not fighting, uh, opposition, excuse me, in opposition with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very uh, proud of the oral tradition, and yet the Sadducees didn't recognize the oral tradition. Uh, The Sadducees claimed that only the teachings of Moses found in the first five books of the Bible were to be seen as something to be followed and adhered to, not the oral traditions and not the things passed along by different rabbis and uh, religious leaders. Okay? They also enjoyed privileged positions in society, and they managed to get along quite well under Roman rule. Okay? There is a lot of speculation that there was a lot of um, uh, Ill, Ill happenings, okay? ill-gotten gains, and uh, behind-door uh, secret handshakes that were going on between members of the Sadducees and the Roman rule. There was a very strong connection between them. Again, something that separated them from the Pharisees. Okay? But most notably of all was their disbelief in the resurrection and the immortality of the soul. Okay? They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in a lot of spiritual things. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that they didn't really believe in the spirits or in angels. Okay? And so their disbelief in the resurrection seems to be what stirs them to approach Jesus with a question that they surely believe will make the belief in the resurrection look foolish. So let's see what they say. Verse 24 through 28. They came to him saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were, excuse me, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. It would seem that the Sadducees are attempting to show how how Jesus' own belief in the resurrection leads to just ridiculous conclusions. Okay? Their what-if question okay, it is question designed to show how absurd consequences that can, the absurd consequences that can arise from believing in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees spoke of a situation that, in my opinion, is certainly not based upon a real-life event of seven brothers all marrying the same woman and never having children and all of them dying. Okay, I believe, without a doubt, this was a hypothetical question meant to cause problems for those that believe in the resurrection. Okay? The question is based upon a law that was given by Moses regarding the marriage duty of a surviving brother. Okay? Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Okay? Basically, the law stated that if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son to carry on his name, then the brother is to take the dead brother's widow as his own wife, and then their firstborn will succeed to the name of his dead brother. That the family name would be carried on. Okay? This law was not mandatory. Okay? If a brother didn't want to take his dead brother's widow as wife, he didn't have to. Okay? There was a ceremony that could be performed that involved 
of interest, a, a sandal and a woman actually spitting in the face of the brother in front of everybody at the city gates. And if they went through this whole ceremony, then the man would be released from the obligation to perform uh, this uh, service to his brother. If you guys want to check out the details of it, it's in Deuteronomy 25. We don't have time to look at it, but it's a little weird. Uh, but you can look it up, verses 5 through 10. Okay? Anyways, their fictional account of a woman that had seven brothers before her death led to a question regarding marriage in the resurrection. Okay? They asked, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? Because they all had her. Verse 29, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. I find that interesting that he says they're like angels, knowing that they don't believe in angels. Um, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus answered the Sadducees on two different fronts. First, he addressed their lack of knowledge In the scriptures. Nowhere in the Old Testament has scripture specifically told us that there isn't marriage in heaven. Okay? So what were the Sadducees supposed to know about scripture that should have revealed to them that there isn't marriage in heaven? I believe it has to do with the very purpose of marriage and the design of marriage by God. Back in Genesis, God established and designed the very first marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so we see that marriage was given as a response to man's loneliness and his need for a helper. Man will not be lonely in heaven. Okay? He will be with God and the angels and the rest of the church uh, body. Okay? He will have no need for a helper as well because we will be in heaven. In Genesis 1, God established the first marriage between Adam and Eve and He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it in verse 28. Marriage was also given to man and woman so that they could procreate and fill the earth. Again, heaven is not a place filled by man's procreation. Okay? But it is filled by God and, his, and is filled with God and His angels and His children. There will be no need for people to be born in heaven. Okay? And it won't, that just won't happen. Okay? And so if the Sadducees would have considered the basis for marriage and the design that God gave to it, that it was for man and his, uh, his loneliness and for him to have a helper and for them to fill the earth and subdue it, and realizing, well, none of those things are needed in heaven. Well, then marriage, therefore, would not be needed in heaven. You know, I, I, when I study that, I kind of get a little bummed out because I really, really love my wife. Okay? And 
I don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. Okay? I believe that we'll know each other, that we'll recognize each other, that we'll be familiar with one another. Uh, but we're going to have new bodies. I don't know what those new bodies are going to look like. Okay? Uh, all I know is that it's going to be way better than what any of us could think or imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard uh, of all that God has planned for us in heaven. It is going to be glorious. And we might think, man, our, i got a great marriage and a great family, and I don't want to lose this. Let me tell you, heaven is going to be much, much better than anything here on earth, okay? What is it going to exactly look like? I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. We do know marriage as we know it today is not going to be like that in heaven, okay? The second front Jesus answered was in regard to the Sadducees not knowing the power of God. Here Jesus tackles their unbelief in the resurrection and the power of God to raise to life that which is dead. Again, Jesus refers to the scriptures to prove his point. This time he's going back to the Lord's words to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, it tells us, Moreover, he said, this is the Lord speaking to, to, to Moses through the burning bush. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The key Jesus is pointing out is the tense that God used when he spoke to Moses. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. He said, I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is the great I am. Jesus used this as proof that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive and that God was still their God. Jesus... uh, concluded his statement by proclaiming that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so he says, certainly, if you knew what Moses told you, and it's, what do they believe in? Only the teachings of Moses, right? The first five books of the Bible. And so he takes them to Moses. He says, hey, when Moses was talking with the Lord, the Lord said, I am, not I was. They're still alive. And Jesus, he accused the Sadducees of not knowing the Scripture nor the power of God and supported his answers with the Scripture. You know, many problems have entered into the church and into different doctrines and waves of of philosophy and theology based upon not knowing the Scriptures. And, And it's just a good reminder for us that we need to be committed to the Word of God. Okay? Not just committed to the Word of God, and not just knowing it, but properly applying it to our lives every day as well. Okay? These people didn't understand the Word of God. They were mistaken. And because of their mistake, they had come up with wrong conclusions about God and who He was and His power and what He can do in a life. And we need to be careful of doing the same. We need to know the Word of God. Not just know it, but apply it properly to our lives. 
The multitudes who heard Jesus' response to the Sadducees were astonished at his teaching. And according uh, to verse 34, the Sadducees were even silenced. The idea of that word uh, in verse 34 is that they were muzzled. They, they couldn't speak a word. They were just mute, okay, dumbfounded, couldn't answer a word as Jesus put them uh, in their place as they tried to put him in a sticky situation. Well, let's read this next line of questioning. We've got the Pharisees of the Herodians. We've had the Sadducees come to him. Now we're going to see the Pharisees coming again with a lawyer, uh, a scribe. In verse 34, uh, let's read. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The Pharisees, uh, upon hearing of how Jesus silenced the Sadducees, which I'm sure they delighted in, uh, they too gathered together to come and test Jesus with yet another question. This question came from a certain lawyer who asked Jesus about which of all the commandments was the greatest. Which one is the greatest? Now, the Pharisees and scribes prided themselves on their extensive knowledge of the law. Okay? In, in fact, I was reading one commentator uh, which stated that the scribes had documented 613 commandments in the law. Okay? 248 of them were positive and 365 of them were negative commandments. Okay? The scribes further divided the laws into heavy or important and then light or unimportant commandments. And the idea that they portrayed was that a person could just focus in on following the heavy, important commandments and not really have to worry about these lighter, unimportant commandments. And of course, the error in such thinking is that if you break any one of the laws whether they're seen as a heavy or a light, important or unimportant, you're still guilty of breaking them all. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us this. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Their attempt to try and make things easier and say, oh, this one's not as important, it, it, it did not help at all. Anyways, this lawyer asked Jesus, of all the 613 commandments, which one is the greatest? 37, Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And he gives him a bonus here. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus, he responded by quoting part of what is called the Shema. Okay? Uh, the Shema is a prayer that is supposed to be recited daily by Orthodox Jews in the morning and in the evening. Okay? Uh, the Shema is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Okay? It start, begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes into verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. 
Okay? The greatest commandment involves loving God with everything we have. This means our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our possessions, our service, our entire lives. Anything that we have, we use it and as a demonstration of our love towards God. Jesus didn't stop with just loving God, though. He gave to the lawyer not only the greatest commandment of all, but he also highlighted the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? This also came from the Old Testament in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Jesus claimed that all the law and prophets were hung from these two commandments. You know, it's amazing to consider all the things that were prohibited by the law. Okay? Some of them were, were good things. We'd say, yeah, that's, that's good that it was prohibited. You, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. Okay, those are, those are good things, right? We'd say, yeah, those are good rules to follow. But they had some weird rules, too. Okay? They had rules about dietary rules. Okay? Not, you shall not eat meat torn by beast. Okay? You shall not uh, oppress a stranger. They, they had all sorts of weird customs and rules regarding diets, regarding uh, handling foreigners and what to do with them, uh, things to do and not to do in the temple. There was all sorts of rules and regulations that had been put in place. And Jesus simplified it for them and for us. Instead of trying to remember and learn all the things that we weren't supposed to do, he simply said, love the Lord with everything you have, okay? and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? If you do these two things, you won't do any of the other 360 negative commandments that you're not to do. If you really are loving God, and you really are loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder. You're not going to bear false witness. You're not going to steal. You're not going to covet. You're not going to do the things that you're forbidden from doing if you really are loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. Paul attested to this in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul wrote, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm, excuse me, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, the interesting thing to consider in this questioning is that the, the very group of Pharisees that this lawyer belonged to had been plotting a way to have Jesus killed. Even though they prided themselves on knowing the law, it seems as if it wasn't important to follow. For they were not loving God nor their neighbor when they plotted to kill Jesus. You know, as we look at this section, I, I believe we know just a couple different things, but just really the, the great importance for us 
to love God with our everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want to encourage us all to be those that love God with everything that we have. And to love our neighbor. And in doing so, we will fulfill the law. And in doing so, we will identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. Jesus had answered all their questions, and now it was time for them to answer a question from Him. We're going to read verse 41 through 46. It says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus asked about the Pharisees' thoughts about the Christ and whose son is he. Okay? Jesus is going to address the Pharisees' lack of understanding regarding the Christ, okay? the Messiah. Okay? Although the question is posed as another type of theological question, similar to the ones that they had asked him, It is really a very personal question about Jesus. Basically, he is asking about their thoughts about him and whose son he is. Remember that he had already asked the disciples this. He he said, what did the people say? And they're all they say, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life, or you're Elijah, or you're Jeremiah, or you're this other prophet. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here we see he's asking this basic same question to them. And it's a little bit masked because they don't recognize him for who he is. And so he says, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And so let's look at their response. They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the Spirit call him Lord saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The Pharisees, they answered correctly when they identified the Christ as being the son of David. This was a well-known fact regarding the Christ. Many scriptures prophesied and attested to the fact that the Messiah would be coming from the line of David. Okay, that's a no-brainer. Everyone knew that one. Okay, Jesus was well aware they knew the answer to the first question. You see, but the answer to the first question led into a second question that Jesus asked about David and his relationship with the Messiah. Jesus asked... How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? That word Lord, it's Adonai. It means God. Jesus, he quoted from a psalm of David, Psalm 110, to be, uh, if you want to look that up, Psalm 110. It was known and accepted by all Jewish authorities to be a psalm that referred to the Messiah's coming reign upon the earth. Okay? And the question was simple enough. David or Jesus was saying, if the Messiah is the son of David, 
Why does David call him Lord? Why does David call him God? How could the Messiah be both David's son and the son of God or God at the same time? That's the question. And the only viable answer to the question is that the Messiah must be both God and man. The wonderful truth of Psalm 110 is that they had uh, that they missed out on is that it taught that the de- about the deity and humanity of the Messiah, that he would be the son of David, but he would also be God. The image of the Messiah didn't fit with their preconceived notions of who the Messiah would, believe, would be. They believed He would be a man that would come. And He was a man that came. But they didn't believe He would be God. And that's one of the things that really churned them against Jesus. When He made claims to be from God, to be God's Son, that is what enraged them. You know, from this last section, you know, I think we take most from this, that we take the most from this is the importance of properly answering that simple question. What do you think about the Christ? Today, in Iwakuni, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Whose son is he? Is he God's son? Do you even think about Him at all? Through the week, when you're at work, when you're at home, in the morning or in the evening, before you go to bed, do you take time to consider Jesus Christ and what He's done for you? To consider who He is and, and, and what He's doing in your life. What do you think about Jesus Christ? I hope that you think about Him often. I hope that you not only think about Him, but that you act upon those thoughts, that you live for Christ. Today, you know, we covered a large portion of Scripture and looked at these different groups of people that tried to trap Jesus in His words. From the first group that questioned Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar, we noted how God wants us to render to Him that which belongs to Him. Okay? That He purchased us and that we are no longer our own, but we are His. Okay? And He wants us to live our life for Him. The second group of Sadducees that questioned Jesus about the resurrection and marriage, we noted how their ignorance of Scripture led them to false understanding of God's Word and His power. And we were encouraged to be people of the Word. Okay? To not only know what it says, but to properly apply it to our lives. The third line of questioning regarding the greatest commandment teaches us the importance of loving God with all we have and loving our neighbors as ourselves, knowing that love is the single most uh, identifiable attribute of God in our lives. That Jesus said, they'll know you because of the love that you have for one another. They'll know that you're my disciples. Do people in your life know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Can they look at your life and say, 
yeah, that person is filled with love. That person has something unique, something different about them. That's the goal. That is the desire. Lastly, when Jesus questioned the Pharisees, we were encouraged to be those that think about Jesus throughout the day. How, we would, how He would use us. How we would best represent Him in our lives. I want to encourage you to constantly be thinking and meditating upon the Lord, His goodness, and what He has for you. To be thinking about Jesus, but not only to think about Him, to allow those thoughts to lead to actions in our life. All right. I do hope and trust the Lord had something for each of us today. We took a big section there. Section there. Um, I know that we could have you know, shaken a whole lot more off of some of those trees, but this is how I felt the Lord was leading us. And so uh, I pray and hope and trust that the Lord had something for each of us. Let's close in prayer, and then the worship team is going to come up and lead us in one last song. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do thank you for your word. Lord, as these people, they, they came and they, they examined you. They, they tested you uh, with their questions and they thought they had it all figured out. They were going to really show you, uh, Father, you were able to respond in, in such a way that, <laughs> that silenced them all. And as verse 46, at the end of our, our, our chapter, it says, there were n- after that moment, none dared question you. You know, it's interesting to, to consider that why they didn't question you. I wonder, Lord, if it wasn't because they, they, they didn't like being put in their place, but more of the fact that they just didn't like the truth that was coming, the truth that you were proclaiming, and they didn't want to acknowledge it, they didn't want to hear it anymore, and for that simple reason, they just said, we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to question them anymore because the truth is too evident, and I don't want to surrender to it or submit to it. And so they said, no, we're done. Lord, I hope and pray that none of us are like that. Lord, I hope and pray that we would be people that uh, would inspect you and and think of you and know and trust in who you are, uh, the sacrificial Lamb of God who, who paid for our debt, who covers us with and just makes us white as snow. Lord, I just pray that you would... Uh, Allow us to be mindful of that through this week. That we would be thinking of what you've done for us and and how we can live for you and honor you. Lord, give us the strength to to show the world around us your love. And so, Father, uh, be with us. Lead us and guide us this morning. Uh, Give us just a, a great remainder of our day. And may we just continue to enjoy your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name.